Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Fire for them, fire for them. If you're looking for that 35-bag umbrella and all damn thing there, Keep it locked with this Unomics podcast. podcast, 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 podcast. Yo, 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 welcome to another episode of the Disnomics Podcast. Make sure if you're listening, drop a hashtag on Twitter or Instagram. Let me know what you think, the good, the bad, the ugly, or just let people know you're listening to it. Because I know there's many of you that listen, but you don't really say anything. Kind of boost my ego, small, small, you know what I mean? Make sure you check out last week's episode and all the previous week's episode. Um, I do daily pretty much updates on Instagram and Twitter regarding coronavirus. So if you're tired of the scaremongering on the news or these dickhead WhatsApp voice notes that not even the aunties and uncles them are saying, they're now regular people, you want to filter through the rubbish, just come to me, I'll give you the facts, quick things, straight to the point. So that's on Instagram at Dysonomics and Twitter at underscorenomics. This week's podcast, I have a special guest on. My guy Demi, aka Mr. Lendo. He has a business called Lendo, um, which specializes in helping unrepresented entrepreneurs um, finance their businesses through loans, or and they've also got partner schemes if case the capital need is greater than what they can provide. So make sure you check that out. He speaks about his journey from trying to make it as a pro footballer to summon to uni course and then starting to trade and then going into Lendo. He speaks very well. It was such a great, um, great chat. And we also speak about Rishi Sunak's big business scheme, CBO scheme, where he's provided 350 billion pounds worth of money to be loaned out to small businesses in the UK. And we talk about how it's actually not currently working on some of the issues with some of these um, schemes. Such, and yeah, it's a very, very good chat. So that's something for you to look forward to. I'm going to start off with a light Corona chat. Um, firstly, we've seen a lot of statistics regarding um, um, black and other ethnic minorities and Corona. Now, these numbers are as of April the 10th. So, in terms of black and other ethnic minority people, 100% of the doctors that have died have been uh, ethnic minorities. 50% of nurses who have died have been ethnic minorities. More than one in three of people in intensive, in, in intensive care are ethnic minorities. So this is all quite worrying stats. 
Very, very worrying stats. So a lot of people of Ox have started to speculate naturally why this is when you see a clear trend. Um, I was speaking to my boy. I had my own personal um, theories, but I spoke to my boy, Dr. Lee. Obviously, you need to get some further guidelines. I did my own research as well. Um, a lot, some of the, so let's just filter through some of the bullshit. When we were talking about all the seasoning and that, that makes, there's no scientific correlation between the seasoning that you put on food and the impact coronavirus will have on your body. So let's just knock that out of the bat straight away. Um, salt is slightly different. So if you look at more um, newer evidence regarding the guidelines in terms of how much salt that you should be having, the new evidence actually suggests that if you've got a normal kidney and no high blood pressure, the amount of salt that is advised currently is quite restrictive. In fact, you could probably have a lot more salt than advised. However, this changes if you have um, high blood pressure and you have um, not too great kidneys. The reverse can, it actually can be a problem to your to your overall well-being. Now, if you're looking at coronavirus and what can impact it, if you have high blood pressure and you suffer from hypertension, you're disproportionately likely to get very ill from coronavirus with comparison to if you do not have high blood pressure, you don't have hypertension. And now, if we look at ethnic minorities um, with high blood pressure and hypertension, it's, it's um, disproportionately higher within ethnic minorities, shall I say. We, we are disproportionately more likely to have high blood pressure and, high, and um, hypertension. And this is especially if you look at uh, Black African and Black Caribbean people. Part of this is, so when you look at, and that obviously will have an impact in terms of coronavirus. Because as I said, if you have high blood pressure and if you have hypertension, you're disproportionately likely to get more ill from coronavirus. So part of the reason for this is due to lifestyle and diet. But the the main reason is probably um, obesity. If you're... Um, we eat way too much in disproportionately to other, um, to let's say white British people and we're more likely to be obese. So that's going to have an impact in terms of high blood pressure and hypertension and that type of stuff. But however, the data set isn't that large enough yet. So, because when you think about it, um, if you look at the hotbeds for Corona, they tend to be in the cities, especially London. And if you look at, um, for example, the healthcare staff, in places like London, Birmingham, Leicester, they are very, very highly dominated by ethnic minorities. And even some of the communities, you have very, very high density of ethnic minorities in all about London, for example. I'm sure some of you listening now think about your local area or certain areas you've been to, the proportion of ethnic minorities is very, very high. So that's probably likely one of the main reasons we're seeing this disparity in statistics. But of course, as unfortunately time gets longer, we have a larger data set we can really assess the trend but that's just something i wanted to knock out straight from the bat uh, as well as so to kind of stop some of the fear mongering and some of the wishy-washy theories out there that have no real scientific credence and also please stop with the 5g it's just complete and utter nonsense some quick corona stats um over 400,000 and over 465,000 uh corona cases in america alone more than 1.5 million in the world in total um, like just yesterday, America suffered over 2,000 coronavirus deaths. It's really, really bad in the state of New York where their numbers are almost matching the United Kingdom's. Um, we've just seen, I think, 700 deaths following from two back-to-back -back days of 900 deaths. So it's not a good look at the moment and we're just praying for people's safety. So that's a quick coronavirus update in terms of 
the numbers. In terms of what people are doing, um, we had Pretty Patel on Saturday speaking about there's been an overall reduction in crime by 21%, but there's also some increases in certain departments where, for example, there's fraud forces are doing special coronavirus frauds where they've already finessed 1.8 million out of people. We're seeing a rise in domestic violence calls to the domestic violence helplines. And um, she mentioned that if anybody has any issues, they should call 999. And if you can't speak, press 55. So obviously you might be in a scenario where you actually can't speak because that may put your safety in jeopardy. I made a typo in my um, notes, God forgive me. Um, but yeah, press 555. Press 55, sorry. So, and also she was speaking about a large community feel and I feel like that's something that's very important. If you know of some people that could be in need of help, I think this is not the time to be silent or turn a blind eye because with schools being shut, businesses being shut, gyms being shut, libraries, everything shut, some people actually have no escape. So that's very, very important. Now, before we get on to Lendo, um, again, the finance office come out because the Bank of England said they're going to print money and basically give it straight to the Chancellor to get cracking with the fight back to Corona in terms of the impact on the economy. Um, and then people asking me, oh, what does this mean? Da -da 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 -da, in terms of the government printing. Basically, Bank of England printing a hell of money and giving it straight to Rishi in a duffel bag, drop to number 10, yo, have that, feed your family, go do your thing, big man. Whereas before, they might buy up gilts, which are government bonds, and start to finance it that way. I spoke about that on two or three podcasts ago. But this time, they're going straight to source. Yo, boom, here's the cash. And a lot of people are saying, for example, my brethren, uh, shout out Martha MXN, make sure you check out Hugh Agency, um, Black Femme Film, or is it Black Film Femme? I can't remember. She was like, yo, so... What's this about what? When things get hicky, like, we just print money. And, yeah, like, worst case scenario, this is what we do. And it's not the best case. You, you literally only... So a lot of people are saying, oh, magic money tree. Oh, Corbyn was right. No, stop that. Stop that. Stop that. I explained two or three pods ago about the Corbyn thing. What he wanted to do, he wanted to increase overall national spending to a level that's not actually insane, but he wanted to do it too quickly. His costings were incomplete. For example, like he was saying, oh, we're going to raise this much via tax, and it didn't make sense. It just physically wouldn't happen. And for what you're trying to spend money on, you have a question of yield and return. And so, we, let alone a privatisation, or we can get into that. However, what we're seeing now is because we're in a state of economic apocalypse. The, the, the economy is not running. Nobody is allowed outside. Nigga say we outside. Where to pop smoke? Nobody's allowed outside. So we can't spend money in certain places, but some businesses aren't open and we're not allowed outside to spend our money or open businesses anyway. So we're at an economic impasse. Yeah? We're done out. So the government are the governments are resorting to literally doomsday measures. And when and there's an issue, the issue with printing money and just using that as a tools, it can lead to hyperinflation, where the rate of inflation just becomes um, berserk. So look at places like Zimbabwe, where you've got trillion dollar bills and that, or look at places like Venezuela, or Germany back in the days, like so many different places. Like it's, hyperinflation is almost always linked with just your, your economy in the shitter, for lack of a better term. So that is, um, that is the worst case scenario, and that's what they're doing it. So... This led me to kind of give a quick preview of how money actually works before we get into Lendo. So, 3000 BC, clay tablets were used to record what was owed and these were kept in temple vaults. So, let's say, for example, 
Um, let's talk. Let's use my friend Martha for example. Yeah, sorry, Martha. Martha, she has a cornfield. She has hella corn. Me, I sell luxury garments. Yeah, Martha's like, Do you know what? Yeah, I need some clothes. Like, there was a fire, I burnt all my clothes. I need some new drip. I'm like, okay, cool. I can give you some drip, but in exchange, I also need some corn. Obviously, it ain't harvest time, so Martha can't really give me can't give man corn right now. But what she can do is agree to give me a certain amount of corn, and this will be put on a clay tablet, so I'm owed this amount of corn. And now I can have, I can she can have the clothes. I in turn have the debt token saying, yo, in X amount of days or months or weeks, I am due X X amount of corn. This is essentially like money. This so the clothes maker can use this debt token. To, so I can I use this to go, let's say I need meat. I can go to the meat shop. So Yoji, um, I ain't got no clothes or something, but bro, man's got this debt token, you get me? So that is how money initially started, yeah? Obviously, you need an external authority to verify debt tokens. Yeah, you can't just make up your own debt, debt token. Same way, you can't just make up your own money. Like, it has to be verified. So Kings and them, they verify this. And obviously, you need a place to store all these debt tokens because you can't just be walking around with clay tablets all the time. So... This, this is where banks came into handy. They needed a place where these debt tokens can be um, stored and cleared. Banks reduced the need for debt tokens to be exchanged to exchange hands all the time. And this is essentially how money was birthed. So money equals debt, and debt equals money. Banks create new money every day, which they lend to customers every day. They just create new money. They essentially lending money into existence. So don't think like, for example, any your local NatWest doesn't have, so let's say, doesn't have everybody's money in their vault. So when I was looking at um, some research, so I was looking at in America, for example, they're saying like small banks will have like 20,000 on deck and maybe a larger bank will have like 200 bags. That's why don't, don't let Money Heist and Ocean's Eleven, all these films fool you and think these banks just have just wads of cash chilling in a vault. Um, the FBI um, said in 2006 that average bank robbery only yielded $4,330. Imagine you're risking many years in jail on a bank job only to get four acts, four bugs. It's not really worth it. So if you look at the Bank of England, they said that, f and if you look at the total money in the, in the economy, 3% is actually notes and coins. So imagine, 3%. So three of every £100 is accounted for in notes and coins. 18% are in bank reserves and 79% are in bank deposits. The Bank of England also, fun fact, they hold 400,000 bars of gold, which is worth £100 billion. But when you think of what the Bank of England are currently doing in terms of just printing money like mad, they don't, they don't have the reserves for all the money that they engage with. Same with every bank. As I said, banks are out here doing up Houdini. So if you walk into, so for example, you walk into a bank here and you say, yo, I need 50 bags because I'm going to buy, I don't know, a Mercedes. The bank teller, she types in some keys. And before you know it, 50 bags has hit your account. She just created that money like that. Boom. Now you can use this money to go out and, I don't know, let's buy the Mercedes. And people doing these activities enables Mercedes to keep on making more and more cars and be able to hire people and fire people in some cases. And these people who get paid can now go and feed their families or buy groceries, which enables Asda and whatever shop to, and so on and so forth. This is called the multiplier effect. Debt makes economic growth possible. But unfortunately, what we've seen 
is that maybe in today's society, in today's econo- um, economy, that we've taken it too far. You're seeing companies that actually can't afford, massive companies can't afford to stay afloat without being able to trade and earn for like a few months. Streets are saying that Burnley Football Club in the Premier League, who have a massive TV deal, yeah, who only have a certain amount of employees, for example, might not survive if there's no football to August. We're seeing airlines taking L's, but giving out massive dividends and buying back stock. Same way we're seeing some people who are being furloughed or who are maybe made redundant might not be able to survive um, three, four, five months in because they're not earning. And this is the type of economy that we unfortunately have. But that was just to give you a quick insight. Now I'm going to be joined by my guy Demi, aka Mr. Lendo. Let's go. Hi, guys. I'm Sam, and listen to the Dysonomics podcast because it's lit. So I'm joined here by a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself, special guest? <laughs> special. Yeah. Yeah. My name. My name. My name is. Uh, my name is Demi. Um, I run a social lender called um, called Lendo that particularly focuses on. And providing finance and um, providing access to finance for underestimated entrepreneurs. And yeah, I'll go into exactly what underestimated entrepreneurs are as we get deeper into the podcast. But yeah, that's who I am. And that's uh, what I do. And what was your, um, did you go to university? Did you go to college? Like, um, What was your academic background, if you had one? And how did you get into um, your business as uh, as uh, Mr. Lender? Like, how, how, did that, um, <laughs> how did that manifest? <laughs> Um, so it's, it's quite an interesting story, actually. So my um, educational background was initially, so when I was in school and when I was in college, I loved finance. So um, at school, of course, done like, you know, got your GCSEs, ATCs, done really well, done best in, in maths. Um, then I went on to college and college was quite interesting because I never went to do A-levels. I actually done a BTEC. Mm. Um, and that was because at the time I was, you know, really keen on playing football. And, um, yeah, I just wasn't concentrating and I just thought, you know what, let me just go through clearing to college, went to city in Israel, but I ended up studying business and uh, finance and the, the BTEC. And then I ended up really focusing on, or my best course was economics. So during economics, you know, at the time we was going through the financial crisis or we was, 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 it was leading up to the financial crisis. So very similar time to now where, um, constantly those headlines coming into, um, headlines in the papers about the fact we're rolling into a recession um, Northern Rock going bust, um, certain banks, you know, having to be taken over by the government, all of this stuff. And that's what really got me interested in, um, in I would say, financial, into the financial markets. But yeah, done a BTEC, um, done relatively well, ended up doing really well in the BTEC, actually. And actually, I ended up um, applying to go and study money, banking and finance at, univer- at the University of Essex. Mm-hmm. But again, football, football, to some degree, got in the way because I realised that if I went and done that degree at the University of Essex, I wouldn't be able to go on trial because I was, I was on trial for Southend. Okay. Um, um, and I was thinking, you know, at that age, I'm going to make it. Definitely, it's guaranteed. And, um, I mean, you know, what happened, happened. But um, I ended up dropping out. I, mean, I ended up not going to Essex, so dropping out. And then um, telling my mum and dad, I'm not going to go to, 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 to uni. Um, then, obviously, they forced me, being Nigerian parents. But at that time... <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't get reinstated back. I couldn't get my place reinstated. So I couldn't get back into Essex because they was like, the course is now full. So I was, I, I was kind of forced to say, well, let me go somewhere that's close to my football club so I can keep playing semi-pro and I can make sure my trial, like once my trial's done, I can go play, play for Southend or whatever. So I went to Harfordshire and what was mad, when I called them for clearing, they was like, 
the only course that's available is business and marketing. And I was thinking, business and marketing? But I was like, all right, cool, business is cool, but let me hit up, like, let me, let me see what this marketing thing is saying. So um, went to Harpage, I ended up doing what, which ended up being actually a, a predominant marketing degree. Mm. Ended up doing a marketing, um, 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 a, a BA honors in marketing. And um, yeah, I never made it in football. I got injured, as everyone does, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got a knee. Couldn't made it, but my knee, <laughs> my knee. But, um, <laughs> I got injured and um, ended up playing for the uni first team. That was pretty cool, but I never ended up kind of getting anywhere with football. So I had to actually live out my whole degree. I had to do like complete my degree, something I thought I would never do. And that's mm. the only reason why I took it because I thought, well, I'm going to be out here in a year anyway. Mm. But because of my love for economics, finance, and the financial markets. I had started investing when I was about 17, 17, 18. And that was because during the last recession, um, or in the build-up to the last recession, of course, what I mentioned about my economics class where we would go over what was happening with the banks and like the recent headlines and really dig into what was happening in the economy alongside looking at the prices of stocks during every, every, um, every lesson we've done. Um, I had a friend who worked at Barclays and um, at the time, he was like he was a lot older than me. He was um, buying and selling shares at that time, and he he kind of t- well he gave me a tip. He was like, you know what, well, you should buy some Barclays shares because actually they've gone down to about I think at that time they went down to about thirty three p. So they had gone they had fallen dramatically and then they hit about ninety three p. Then they went down to thirty three p. And this was when the government was potentially supposed to take over just before Bob Diamond kind of sealed that deal with the Saudis um, and saved and saved the bank. But long and short, he told me to buy a 33P. I never. Mm. And as you all know how the story goes, right? Bob <laughs> saved the day um, and the price skyrocketed. It didn't skyrocket to like, you know, back to where it was, but it jumped from 33P back to the 90s and from there started to make its way up. Mm. And the friend of mine who told me to buy it, um, he did. <laughs> and, you know, when he came back from holiday in two weeks, um, he bought everyone drinks and he kind of said to me, I told you, I told you so. And that was my real like into financial markets. So he gave me a book called The Naked Trader. And from that time on, I was investing privately. Um, initially with, with obviously dummy, with, with a dummy account via Harvey's Lansdowne. And then when I got into university and got a student loan with my actual own money. So yeah, that's how I, that's how I really got into the financial markets. But I never actually studied anything to do with, to do with the financial markets at university anyway. Okay, so that gave you the kind of not only the foundational knowledge of of financial markets and just money in general, but also gave you practical activity in terms of finance. So, how did you or whoever you may have come up with the idea with um, land at Lendo? Yeah, so Lendo is a quite an interesting story. So, even though I was, even though I got involved in the financial, like in investing, basically um, from a relatively young age. I didn't really do too well at it. So I knew I liked it and I knew there was what I wanted to do on the side. It was never like going to be my main thing, but I wasn't, it was never, a, it was never a case that I was always making money. So initially I was buying and selling stocks and shares um, on the FTSE 100. Then by the time I got to university, I had found out about the, the AIM market, which is called the alternative um, investment market, AIM. And um, it's for like small cap companies. So the likes of ASOS, hopped on the AIM market first, and I think they still are on the AIM market. Um, a lot of these kind of small UK companies will try and get onto the AIM. But I, I started investing there, and I was kind of gambling throughout uni. And then when um, I lost all my money, um, I realized that actually um, stocks and shares might not be for me, or the AIM market might not be for me. So I said, let me look at another industry, or, or let me look at like another um, financial product. 
And um, I, it was kind of it's kind of crazy how it happened. But I went to Forex, lost a lot of money there as well. Um, Bear man, I've taken L's on Forex, boy. <laughs> Bear everyone has taken L. L for it. Everyone has taken L. But what was interesting is me getting into Forex after university um, led me or led like people to know that okay, Demi's into investing because I took it very seriously, even though I was losing money. And what happened was my sister one day was was literally walking home. And she met um, quite an influential man um, who at the time was working or was on gardening leave, actually. He was on holiday or, or some, some sort of like, yeah, gardening leave, you could call it that, from one of the biggest um, stockbrokers in America. Oh, wow. And um, this stockbroker happened to be one of the biggest stockbrokers, but also one of the most, uh, ran by one of the most shadiest financial <laughs> figures in America. So I'll let you guess who it is. Um, do, you, do you want to take a guess? Um, no, nah, Toby. I don't like taking guess. I don't like taking L's. Um, Madoff. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, right? So basically, what happened was no way he, he was. Yeah, he basically what happened was he was what I believe was on bail. This man that my sister met, he was on bail because he was being <laughs> he was being he was being interrogated or he was being. Um, I think I was trying to find out, was he involved in Bernie's scandal or not? Because long and short, he ran the UK office. Him and three other brokers mm. ran Madoff Securities in the UK. Now, of course, his argument was that he was not involved and he didn't, he didn't know what Madoff was doing. And actually, he was a victim because he gave, obviously, he invested in the fund, right? But um, I, I guess the police in America, I guess the FBI, whoever it was, their argument was, well, you know, we don't know that. So we're going to obviously put you on guard and leave or put you on bail, whatever it is. But while he was on bail he was actually trading from his local coffee store whilst he was living six months in the UK and six months in Spain. So obviously he was very affluent. You know, he had houses all over the world. But, you know, he, he long and short met my sister on the, way, on the way back from the city. And he asked my sister if she wanted to learn how to trade, right? Mm-hmm. And my sister, was like, my sister was like, no, I'm not interested in anything like that. Obviously, I think he fancied her. Um, but um, she said, but, 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 my, but my brother is. And what happened was, it turned out that actually he lived up the road from me. And you know how it goes, right? You live in a council estate, but up the road is like plush, really nice houses. Mm. So he lived in like one of these Victorian houses up the road. So he was like, okay, well, you know, tell your brother if he's really interested to come and meet me at the coffee store on, um, on the high road. Um, or to call me and come and meet me on the coffee store on the high road. And I'll tell him about how he can really get involved in investing. So long and short, I took his number, called him. Um, he said to me, come and meet me at the coffee store on the high road. I went to meet him suited and booted the way I suggested them was so funny because I thought I was like actually a trader mm-hmm. and really I was just like this like independent guy not making any money but um, um, I went to meet him and he just like literally told me about his story the fact that he had you know been working for, for, for Bernie for a while um, he was quite old so you can see that actually he could easily be a victim of Bernie's like Bernie kind of maybe targeted him mm-hmm. to run his UK office um, but you, you know you can see he clearly knew his stuff he had been in the markets for a long time and he taught me all about the retail bond market and that's how I got into lending because I initially started lending retail or, or started investing in retail bonds, um, obviously like kind of under him or, you know, kind of as some sort of like mentee, he would teach me what to do. or He would tell me what trades to invest in. And what happened was I started doing really well. Well, I started making this time, I started actually making a return. So I started being a lot more confident about how I spoke and family and friends started to entrust me with money. And what happened from there was it got to a stage where, at the time, I thought I had a lot of money. So I phoned my broker and I said to them, I want to open up a company account. 
And they said, company account, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, I think I'm doing really well. Um, and I think now it's time for me to start a fund. I had just watched um, The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> so I, was, I was totally gassed. Um, and obviously, I was experienced in the sense that I had done it. I had like actually practiced investing and trading. But I didn't know much about the theory. I didn't know about regulation. I didn't know about all of the things that you learn when you've actually, you know, when you study um, finance or when you, you know, study banking. Um, so what happened was, long and short, my broker kind of threatened to close my account. Or he said, well, either you set up an investment club um, and then you get all of your investors to invest via the investment club or you stop trading on their <laughs> behalf. Um, and um, I didn't want to get, I didn't want to open an investment club at the time because I had taken, obviously, funds from family and friends and promised them a return. Obviously, I was making a much higher return than that. So it was like, well, if I set up an investment club, they're going to see everything I'm doing and how I'm making the money. What's to say they're not just going to start doing it themselves and not doing it through me? Mm, so long Long and short, I kind of just took a step back for a minute and started to really start to think about, okay, what else could I do? Um, in fact, you know what? I didn't know what else to do. I was kind of like stuck. I was actually thinking, what am I, what am I going to do? Because I promised these guys a return. And I didn't know, I didn't have their money. I didn't know where I was going to put their money. But long and short, um, what happened was people at church always used to approach me for finance because they had heard about me investing and they had heard about the fact that I'm taking it really seriously. And, um, you know, I had always said no up until then when... Oh, up until the time when a couple came to me and they had a very similar issue that a lot of the, uh, the, the medium-sized companies that we used to buy retail bonds from had. And that was, they had a business, was doing really well, um, but because of a, I don't know, like a, a, an unforeseen circumstance, they had certain cash flow, um, cash flow um, restrictions um, or they, they, they couldn't, you know, expand how they wanted to. Actually, what happened was, the, the main guy who ran the business was, 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 was in a court case with his partner. And because he was in a court case with his partner and they owned the same store and his wife worked in the store, he wanted to move his wife out of the store that the owner of the business that approached me was in with his partner. I hope this isn't getting too confusing. <laughs> and he wanted to um, open up a shop just for his wife until the court case was over for him then to move into. But because he had so much of the, com uh, the company money in the company account, the, 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 the courts had put a restriction on the account that no one could spend any of the money until the court case was over because uh, they didn't know what belonged to who. So he needed, he, he had funds and his lawyer kind of proved that, but he, or he was, and he was likely to win the case, but he needed cash flow to pay for the lease for three months to open up a store for his wife, who was a hairdresser in the same store that he worked. So when that opportunity came, I said, you know what? when I looked at like the, regu the regulatory requirements around it, business to business lending wasn't regulated. And actually, um, you know, there was a lot of similarities, like the cash flow gap, they was in business um, and they needed funding to do something that they already knew how to do. So it wasn't as risk averse as giving someone money to start a business. Yeah. They already had customers, they already had clients. Actually, They've got, already got a track record of success already. You see what I'm saying? They had a track record. So, you know, instead of looking at audited accounts, I could look at their bank statements instead of looking at, you know, the management profile on Bloomberg or whatever it may be, um, or online. I could just go to the, like, I literally went to his store and I started looking at who his customers were and I, I approached them and asked them about him. You know, what's this guy about? You know, how long have you been cutting there for? You know, who do you cut that's popular? You know, you know, and it turned out actually that, you know, you could do a very similar um, due diligence check, but with alternative data points, if that makes sense, alternative, using alternative um, um, sources of, of, of information. So I ended up providing them a small loan and um, it was really just to save 
um, me from having to pay the investors that I had a return <laughs> <laughs> um, out of my own pocket. And um, it ended up being probably one of the best things I've done. So we've done that in 2014. And at the time, I didn't see it as anything serious. I just thought, well, you know, we made a good return. We'll just do a bit more of these until we figure out what else to do. But it ended up being the thing, actually, that, that, that you know, led to Lendo and me starting. So, yeah, that's how, that's how, Lendo, um, that's how Lendo started. There's, there's, there's other things, of course, involved, but that's probably, that, that was, yeah, one of the, the biggest so you've, been going, so you've been going strong so what would you describe um, Lendo as and how do you think he can help especially in this time we're, we're going to talk about um, the current climate but um, how would you describe Lendo like what's your vision as a company so the vision for Lendo right is to see is to one day see a community where underestimated entrepreneurs don't have to rely on people outside of that community to birth their vision, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like what I foresee happening is us getting to a time where actually, if you can't rely on your own, or if if you if you're not part of a specific um, group where you have the same values, you know, you understand one another, and if you can't trust each other to support one another, not only with finance but also with advice and 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 support and and guidance, then you know, as a community, we're going to be stuck. Um, and I understand that actually that's not only just for people from, 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 from the black community, that's for anyone who's um, suffered from discrimination. That's for anyone who's um, suffered from the fear of rejection, which is one of, you know, probably one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest reasons why we exist. Because there's so many entrepreneurs out there that suffer from the fear of rejection because they've seen their parents being, you know, they've mm. seen their parents get told no. Or they've seen on TV that actually no one that has a business looks like them. So automatically they just assume that if they go for finance, they're going to be told no. Um, and we want to, you know, try and solve that with this community we're building. And that is the long-term vision for Lendo. That, that's what we see it becoming. How much funds um, we deploy into small businesses through that community, only God can say. I mean, I would love to say, in fact, I'll be honest with you. I mean, we have the dream to one day be able to deploy one billion in lending or one billion in, in finance um, to, to underestimated entrepreneurs. And it's, it's possible. If you look at it, right, there's six million um, um, small businesses in the, in the U.K., um, roughly about 2 million of them are micro-businesses, so they fit our demographic or, 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 or they fit our criteria. Because micro-businesses with one to nine employees tend to get rejected quite often because actually they use, they're typically one-man bands. They usually, you know, contact businesses like hairdressers, dry cleaners, um, 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 makeup artists, you know, people that are doing kind of like manicures and all of those stuff. Um, and those businesses tend to be run by people from, from migrant backgrounds. And if there's, if there's, I don't know, let's say there's two million of them, I said, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's probably a bit more than that as well when, 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 I, when I, if I go into the facts. Because 96% of the small businesses in the UK are small. Um, 96% of the businesses in the UK are small businesses. Now, how, how many are micro businesses? Of course, that's another factor. But um, if you look at how much finance the average small business needs, I mean, on average, each small business, quote unquote, has about £10,000 credit on their personal credit card for their business and £10,000 for their actual business. So that's about £20,000. If you do, you know, 2 million times £20,000, it's quite a big market. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's quite a big market. So us deploying through our partner loans and our partner network um, over the, our, our lifespan of 10 or 15 years, um, um, £1 billion pounds isn't, it's, it's, it's not that much. It, you know, it, it really isn't in the, in the grand scheme of things. But for our community... Definitely, it's a lot, and it would definitely make a um, it would definitely make a difference. So that's one of our dreams, and how we get there, you know, 
that's obviously for me to know and everyone else to find out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, is there any like, would you say any success stories that um, um, you can like give the listeners in terms of some of the um, work that Lendo has done with some of your clients and seeing any growth in some of the people that you've um, assisted on their journey? Um, yeah. So there's there's quite a few people. Um, you know, there's there's one that we kind of we, we always kind of scream about, which is slider cuts. Um, slider was in a very similar um, um, scenario to the first business we you know we ever supported, in which you know he wanted to open up a new store. Um, he or he wanted to open up his own store. He already had a great track record. Um, you know, everyone knew him. He already had a great client list. And actually, what was challenging is actually was it was a, more of a cash flow gap issue where he knew over the space of two years he could raise that money through his business or yeah, he can raise that money through his business. But when you're taking out a shop lease, you need to pay a certain amount of months up front yeah. and you also, to, you know, refurbish that, that store and you need to pay that money all at once. It's not a case where you could say, unless you've got a building company, I'm going to pay you over two years. Um, and unfortunately, despite the fact that he had a great, um, what we would call a great profile, he had properties, um, was credible in our eyes. Um, the banks weren't saying yes to him at the time. Maybe because they thought maybe he had a bit too, you know, too much. Um, um, they, maybe they had given him quite a lot already. But, you know, we supported him. And you can see what he's gone on to do for the community. There's a um, mixed madness. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, they, they call themselves, well, they are actually now the number one um, platform, music platform for urban culture. When you look at how well Drill's done over the years, they've absolutely smashed it. And, and they're at the forefront of that. Now, mixtape madness, as you know, right? Um, they've got loads of great drill artists. And actually, a lot of these drill artists, the record labels come to them, say, look, we want to sign this guy, can you get them for us? And yeah, that's, that's all well and good, but what deals are the record labels giving them? You know, what, you know like, like, are these deals, that are, are they fair deals? And actually, once Mixtape Madness came to us, and when they came to us, what we, what we provided them finance for was to be able to actually negotiate better deals with record labels because they don't have to rely on the record labels for marketing for marketing capital because they've got no marketing capital from us. So now they can market their artists, get their artists out there um, and actually negotiate a way better deal for their artists, which has a massive effect on the community because that artist might go and bring on another 10 artists. And, you know, it, it just always has this kind of trickle effect. Um, not only that, but other things like, you know, shooting videos, just, just doing so much things for their artists that comes at an upfront cost. It's not that these guys can't do it, but these guys are very clever. They're very intelligent entrepreneurs. They understand that leverage is key. Yeah. And leverage is actually where you get your your um your biggest returns from. So yeah. Okay, so that's well, those are some reputable names that most of us would have would have heard. Okay, so right now we're in a coro coro corona time, yeah. Um where a lot of business has come to a halt because people are not even allowed out on the streets. So what you're not allowed on the streets, a lot of consumption, a lot of um supply chains, everything virtually everything's disrupted well you're not even you're not even about right now like you're in an undisclosed location so <laughs> you see what i'm saying so everything everything now stop so um rishi sunak so those who've been following me on insta or twitter i've been given um breakdowns just quick summaries of the government's daily briefings which are quite to be honest quite boring <laughs> and they give and R- rishi sunak he's been opening out he's um He's go your duffel bag and just apparently throwing money everywhere. <laughs> Three hundred billion for you, seven hundred fifty million for you. All this and a third, and it all sounds great. However, there actually has to be some form of um, actualization <laughs> of these claims. So I've been speaking to um, um, Demi about 
this here and there and we talk as we especially we speak about from the small business um perspective my parents are small businesses they've asked me questions i've got loads of other people have asked you questions some of the questions people ask me i'm like bro i'm ha- I, ha- I have no idea i'm not rishi so the question you're giving me is too <laughs> it's too specific man don't know like i'm waiting for the information just like you so we've seen the government c bill scheme which is the corona virus let me forget the actual the corona what yeah. is it? coronavirus business interruption loan scheme yeah and it sounds all well and good but in reality it doesn't seem to be operating as smoothly um i think you're telling me um before we um started recording that only what only 983 businesses out of 300,000 that have applied have actually received any form of funding is that correct yeah so yeah Yeah. so last time i checked it was 983 and it equated to about 90 million um that had actually been dispersed um, out of the 330,000 um, inquiries. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some reasons why there's been a delay in funding actually coming or, or being dispersed. So we're working with a few of the lenders and they've actually kind of given us some, like, yeah, I would say inside information, which is actually in the government changing their mind about certain things constantly, it means they have to alter paperwork. So there's been quite a few people that have been approved, but they haven't been able to disperse the funds because they've had to alter the paperwork or alter mm how they've looked at that project from a risk perspective because now they're no longer char- um, taking a guarantee, a personal guarantee from that from that customer. So th- th- there's probably been a few more people approved than the 983, but actually who's, people who've, who've actually received funding is 983, last time I checked anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so of course this number is always going to develop. By the time it's released, another 20 or 500, who knows? But so obviously we're recording yeah. this on Sunday, the 12th of April. So just before people try to come and say we're talking jazz, like, <laughs> things move, you get it? Um, so, okay, so we've seen there's certain level of bureaucracy um, in terms of getting this money from Rishi's um, duffel bag into the, <laughs> into, the, um, into the accounts of business owners. Where can somebody like you um, and your company, Lendo, help some of the people within our communities? Like, how can your company come of assistance in this, in this corona time? Um, so th- there's, two, there's two ways in particular, right? Well, there's, there's multiple ways, but I think there's two that you know, we'll focus on. Um, and one is for our partner network. And our partner network is a network which we set up at the end of last year, um, which was specifically focused on providing um, underestimated entrepreneurs access to finance from other lenders like us with similar values, similar mindset. They've been built literally to serve the under um, the underrepresented. So that's those from black and ethnic minorities. That's female founders. That's those that have been rejected from the banks, um, but with more capital than we can. So we have a limit of £20,000, um, but those in our partner network, the lenders in our partner network have a limit of you know roughly about 120 to 150 in certain cases. Mm-hmm. But we literally, what we do is we work with customers and then we pass them on to companies in our partner network or lenders in our partner network when they've graduated from our partner loan. Um, so we can support there. So you can apply through our partner network and actually gain access to lenders that specifically focus and have been built specifically to serve entrepreneurs that are from black and ethnic minority communities and businesses that are run by women, um, businesses that may be in their early stages. So because they haven't filed their first set of accounts and you don't have a credit score, they've been rejected by the bank. But there are lenders out there that have been set up to um, support those businesses. And so our partner network is a great, is a, is a great area. But I think what's even more interesting, what, what, you know, what we're doing and how we can support is through um, this, this new, technolo- you know, new technology that we're building. So actually last year we realized that if we want to support 
100,000 small businesses, right, or lend up to or provide access of up to 1 billion in lending to small businesses across, across the UK, particularly from underserved and underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds, then you know, we, we can't do that from our own balance sheet alone. So we decided to set up this partner network, but we also realized in providing some of the small businesses that we provided finance through our partners that actually these community lenders, these CDFIs, who also have been accredited by the government to provide finance, they take too long to provide the finance mm-hmm. because they ask a million and one questions. A lot of them are still paper-based. A lot of them actually are run by people who are over the age of 55 and um, you know, are ex-bank managers who decided to set up a not-for-profit that was specifically going to focus on supporting underserved people because of what they had seen happening in the banking space when they was in, their, in the peak of their career. So they don't have that, technolo- that technological advancement. So um, the, the technology we're building, it, it, it came off the back of us applying for what was the Affordable Credit Challenge, um, which was a scheme that was run by um, Nesta alongside HMRC. And this is actually the first time I'm, I'm, I'm announcing this public that we've done this. Okay, but, um, a young exclusive. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> you got your exclusive. So it was run by um, HMRC and Nesta, and it was for community lenders, so credit unions, CDFIs, and those who have been set up to support small businesses in the community or individuals in the community um, to um, work with fintechs um, to eradicate payday lending and high-cost lending. Now, the reason why we got involved is because what we realized is actually there's a large um, creative industry in the UK. Um, there's a large kind of, well, yeah, self-employed, there's a large self-employed market in the UK who have these jobs which don't always provide them the best cash flow. And what happens when they don't have that, that great cash flow is banks say no to them. Yeah, so they facts. end up relying on, relying on payday loans, which are extremely expensive. You're looking at 1,500%. Or they end up relying on, you know, high-cost lending on, on, your, on your high street for a pawnbroker, which might be you know, 10% a month for an, asset, um, for an asset that is actually worth more than a loan they're giving you. So we said, how do we work with com- these community lenders who have actually been set up to support the community um, to solve this problem? And we said, let's build technology that does two things. One, it markets to um, the millennial. So one thing these community lenders can't do very well is market. And I'll explain why if I have the time later on this call. Um, and secondly, it provides the processing power. So another issue that they have is technology. Because a lot of them are not-for-profits or a lot of them are mutual co-ops, um, it means that they have to focus on providing their members a dividend every year, which means that actually reinvesting for them isn't something that they can do. So for them to um, reinvest in, and keep reinvesting until they have enough to be able to employ great, te- um, you know, great te- 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 technological um, employees is highly unlikely. Not only that, but a lot of them are very you know, incumbent. They, you know, they're very like, old school. And no one who's young and who's, who's savvy is gonna, probably going to want to work for them when they can work for a Swarling or work for a yeah. um, work for Monzo or work for a Lendo maybe one day. Yeah, um, yeah facts. Come on. Come on, you know the vibes. So what we've, what we've done is we've, we're trying to build that technology that actually provides them the capacity to underwrite and to process loans extremely fast. And I think now with COVID and what's happening, it's actually proven that our technology is actually needed. Um, because one of the issues, as we all know, is that the processing power... Um, the processing power of a lot of these lenders, the banks from a regulatory perspective and a risk perspective and the community lenders from an operational perspective is, is limited. And that's one of the reasons why not a lot of people have got the finance they need so far. So hopefully, if you apply for our partner network, you can use like the first stages of our technology. We haven't released all of it um, to speed up the process. Um, and that's, how I would say, how we can definitely support people from our community. Okay, definitely. So I'm definitely going to put, um, I'm going to get all the links off for you, relevant links, and I'll put it in the 
description so people can access that. So people who have businesses or who have loved ones or friends that have businesses, they can um, definitely get onto um, get onto you and see get some more information. You mentioned about the marketing of some of these initiatives and schemes. And I think yeah. that's a massive thing um, in general. So even on previous podcasts, even when it comes to women investing, when you're when I was thinking, while looking, why don't women invest as much as men? A lot of it is also significantly due to how certain things are marketed, and they don't tend to be marketed in a way that's going to be receptive to women naturally. So <laughs> I'm seeing similar similarities here. So speak on the marketing issue, especially somebody who has a background in marketing from a more theolo- theoretical perspective. That's what your degree is in. And speaking to what um, Lendo, for example, have done in terms of trying to bridge that gap. So the, the marketing, the, the, what we're bringing differently for these community lenders is the fact that actually they don't know how to target the millennial. One of the things that I always tell the team and I, and I always remember to myself is, look, I am a millennial. So I know I have insight into exactly what's happening. I'm on the ground, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're not, Whilst yeah. a lot of community lenders, they are run by people like, as, like, as I mentioned, they're you know, typically above the ages of 50 if not 45. So they've, they've come out of their peak years of borrowing and their networks are you know, within that age group. And actually they don't know how to market or they don't know how to speak to, to the young entrepreneur or to the um, you know, 40 year old, I'm sorry, or 30 year old, 35 year old millennial who's an ex-professional who now's leaving their corporate banking job to start their own startup or to start their own business. So all we're literally doing is we're creating marketing campaigns that are targeted at them. And also I think one of the big things that we're doing is People are seeing from our adverts, they're seeing slider cuts. And these are people that are, you know, part of their community. They're seeing the representation is there. They're seeing, um, you know, we've got a guy called, um, called Simon um, who we're going to be bringing out an advert on soon. And, and, and he's just signed a deal with um, a very, very well-known um, social media platform. It's not Instagram. It's not Twitter. It's becoming extremely popular. Mm. But um, so I'm, I'm guessing you'll probably guess who it is. Mm. But um you know, he runs a business that because it was early stage, he couldn't get finance. And he explains that in the advert. So when people see representation of themselves in our marketing adverts, they're saying, well, actually, let me apply through them because they understand what I'm going through and they understand what's happening at this current point in time. And they understand what I need, if that makes sense. Because not only is it a, a form of acquisition and marketing, but it's actually a form of once you acquire those customers, what does that, what does that customer need in order to stay engaged in the onboarding process, in the underwriting process? And that's something that these community lenders feel, well, I feel that we can support these community lenders with because they may not always know. Um, so it's more a case of actually um, the reason why we're, we're, we're doing relatively well in acquiring customers um, is because we're acquiring, cust- acquiring customers that are from, um, are, well, they're, they're just like us, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that makes, yeah, that makes, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, cool. You've given us quite a lot of quite a lot of gist. Is anything um, before we go that you feel like is imperative for the listeners to know, whether it be about you, about your business, or about how to navigate this corona corona time? Um, how to navigate corona corona? I think I'll start on first, mm. and then I'll go into a bit about about I think the, the community um, mm. more than just. Yeah, just I think that's more important than me. Mm. But um, Corona, Corona. So it's something we was talking about at the beginning of beginning of this conversation, right? Which is like we need to, and it, it leads into community as well, actually. But we need to stand up and work together and think about how we're going to solve the issues in our immediate communities. Because actually, we've clearly seen by a lot of the policies that have been put in place, i.e., self isolation. Yes, it works for those who have. Uh, from a middle-class family and they have ten, you know, five, houses, five rooms in their house and each person can work in their room. 
But when you're from a community with um, um, people who, who are in a, a two-bed house with six people, self-isolation might not work. So how do we come together as a community to solve some of these challenges and solve some of these problems? And how do we um, collectively create opportunities for people to be able to get through this coral, coral time and um, not suffer? I mean, like, from, from what I've been seeing from a statistic perspective, a lot of people from ethnic minorities are, are, are passing because yeah. of COVID. Yeah, so far, um, yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, you know, why is that? And I look at all of the reasons why it could potentially be, and I just think that we need more representation in higher, in, you know, in, 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 you know, at the level of government, we need high representation, you know, in the banking space, we need high representation, we need representation in the banking space, we need representation in the government, we need representation in all of these areas where these rules and these policies are being put in place. So we can actually, you know, look after not only our own, but, you know, others that are similar to our own. Um, and I think that's how we navigate Coral Coral. We use it as an opportunity to come together and realise that actually, we need to do something about this. We need to do something about where we are in the, in the community and, 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 and where we need to be. And we all need to get our heads down and think about how we can solve these problems. Um, and then I think also in regards to a bit more about the community, I think, no, I think, look, I think that, 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 that sums it up, right? As a community, we need to come together. And that's just not those that are black. That's those that are um, from migrant backgrounds, um, like I said, like Lendo doesn't just focus on um, entrepreneurs that are black. You have entrepreneurs that are Russian. We have entrepreneurs that are from migrant backgrounds. We have entrepreneurs that have been rejected. You know, we really focus on entrepreneurs that have, due to rejection, had to kind of push forward this resilient character. They had to kind of come up with this resilience that has enabled them to get through challenges and continues to get them through challenges, which continues to give us the belief that actually we can trust them with our capital. Um, but yeah, as a community, we just need to come together. Um, I think I think that's the main thing. And yeah, you know, follow our socials and just see our journey. Okay, so know, yeah, so that's, that's a good way to um, to end it. So, what are your socials? So, where can we find um, Lendo on the on the interweb? Um, so www.lendo.com is our website. We're constantly changing it. So, if you go on it, well, when's this going to be released? By the way. Um, later tonight. Later tonight. Okay, cool. If if you go on it later tonight, our dev literally might be on it, so you might find some problems. But by <laughs> tomorrow, um, or, or by Tuesday, um, the new website like will be like will be done, um, and it will be well, it will be it will be published. Um, so I mean, our dev is Italian, and he puts an S on the end of everything, so you might find some spelling mistakes. Is <laughs> um, <laughs> your application form? It says. It, we need your information. So that's our website. Then on um, Instagram, we are Lendo. Um, on um, Twitter, we are Lendo. On LinkedIn, we're on LinkedIn. Also, we're doing an event. So we're doing our first online digital panel called Confronting COVID-19. And if you go to our Instagram and you click on the link, you'll be able to register for a webinar. It's free. Um, we've, we've just tied a deal in today with a charity called um, um, A Plate for London, which is a charity that aims to provide 150,000 kids in East London mills. Um, particularly, particularly kids that are from um, families which um, have parents that maybe work for the NHS, from low-income communities. So our agenda, actually, even though the webinar is free, will be raising money for A Plate for London. Um, and one of the entrepreneurs on the panel um, uh, uh, Dominic, um, who was the founder of Street Fest, Street Feast, I'm sure everyone will know. Um, they're in Shoreditch, Dawson, you know, that all over the all over London. He'll be on the panel, um, talking about more about it. So please join us. We have slider cuts on the panel. We have the founder of one of the founders and CEO of Mixtape Madness 
on the panel. I think you definitely need to join for him because he's a ghost, but he has so <laughs> many gems. Um, and we also have um, um, Joyce and Mate, who runs Afrocentrics. Um, Afrocentrics, which is one of the, you know, I'll probably say the one of the first hair, hair, hair care beauty brands specifically focused on women with curly hair. Um, and they've done great things. They've, yeah, they're they're big. You know, one of the first hair care brands to, to, to break into, first black hair care brands to break into Whole Foods. So, you know, you definitely want to join us on that, on, on that, on that webinar. And we've got my good old friend Samuel Eni hosting it and moderating the panel. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's, those are the places you can find us. And if you want to find me, you can message this you for my, my number. <laughs> right, cool. Yeah, do that, do that. Only if you're serious though, don't waste my G's time. Get me. <laughs> right, cool. Okay, well, okay. Stay safe out there. Um, thank you yeah. for your time. Listeners, no, thank you, man. listeners, hit me up or hit up Demi if you want any more information. Yeah, like you give them my Twitter, like Demi underscore BB underscore, I think it is. Okay. Um, Sports Social Podcast Network.